So we, we are, we're picking um, Esther, the whole book of Esther, and if you know that, that's uh, quite a bit. It's 10 chapters, uh, 11 maybe. Um, but we're just going to try to tell the story of Esther, and then the part where for just the time as this, Beth is kind of that person. She's, she's the one giving us the big stuff. So um, let's listen. As, uh, and then women... No, I think we're just going to teach that song. Okay, so go ahead. And in those days, in the citadel of Susa, King Ahasuerus ruled over the lands from India to Cush. His queen, Esther, niece of Mordecai, lived and ruled in the palace with the king. She, like everyone else, was not permitted to come into his chambers unless he pointed his scepter at her as she entered. Sounds like an easygoing guy, right? Well, then King Ahasuerus appointed... Haman to be his chief officer. Haman, Haman, had the highest role of authority before the king himself. The king ordered all to bow before Haman in obedience. Mordecai, Queen Esther's uncle, refused to bow before Haman. This made Haman quite angry. In an act of spite, he plotted to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, in the land of Ahasuerus. On the thirteenth day of the month, Mordecai implored the king to order the destruction of all the Jews and, and for all their possessions to be plundered. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hacha, one of the king's emus, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening. Attach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susha for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and to entreat him for her people. Hatach went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatch and, told, and gave him a message for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, 
relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susha and hold that fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast, as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And all the people said, Thank you all. Now we're going to teach a song. I'll get Lee to come forward. Oh, she's teaching music. So we'll just do this. I'll teach it. So I'll sing it, and then we'll see if you can all sing it back to me. When I lift my voice, let it be in song, a defiant note in the face of wrong. Try that. When I lift my voice, let it be in song, a defiant note in the face of wrong. Let's try that one more time. When I lift my voice, let it be in song, a defiant note in the face of wrong. And just listen to this. I will stand alone, we'll be side by side. Cause I know that love is always justified. Try that. I won't stand alone. We'll be side by side. Cause I know that love is always justified. And then here's the chorus. And just listen. When we try to divide us, it will only I lift my voice, try that. When they try to divide us, it will only unite us. I lift my voice. All right, so we're going to try this. There are two verses. Really, it's just the very beginning that's changed. Everything else is the same, so here we go. When I lift my voice, let it be in song, a defiant note in the face of wrong. I won't stand alone, we'll stand side by side, cause we know that love is always justified. When they try to divide us, it will only the second verse when I lift my voice let it be for good let me care as much as I know I should I won't stand alone they'll stand side by side cause I know that love is always justified when they try to divide us it will only lift my voice. Very 
we'll try that a little later as well. Perhaps you have come to this place, to this moment, to these people, to this challenge for such a time as this. Time and time and time again in the Bible, this passage, this phrase. Time and time and time again in our lives, in the Christian faith, this passage, this phrase. For such a time as this has caught someone in a room just like this. It might have been you. Right between the eyes you heard it. Has found its way right into the very timeline of someone's existence and changed the course of a community, the course of the world, the course of a family's life. When scripture leaps off the page and enters our very hearts, the world is transformed. We are transformed. When this phrase, perhaps, just maybe, you, not your neighbor, not the pastor, not one of the youth, but you have come to this place, this moment, to these people, to this challenge, for just such a time. Now. Not tomorrow. Not next year. Not when we retire. Not when we're dead. <laughs> Not when we graduate, but now, this very moment, for such a time as this, something happens to us when we realize that God's river of loving kindness is indeed flowing. But in order for it to break through this dam or, or this prejudice or this evil obstacle or this existential point of evil and destruction, we have to join it. We must place our love, our resources, our position, our status, our privilege, our gifts into the river of loving kindness in order for this wall, this injustice, whatever it may be, to come down. Something happens when these words, for such a time as this, becomes flesh. Last week after church, Dave Orndorff and I shared in one of our stretches a bit. We talked about process theology a little bit, process thought. In process thought, there's this idea that God is a, a river, uh, a river of energy, a, a river, an energy force. And, and throughout our historical timeline, each of our historical timelines, each of us are encountered time and time again by this river, by this love, by this energy for, force, by this God. Thousands and thousands of what we call Christ moments happen 
to us. These Esther moments where this love pulls at us and persuades us. Doesn't coerce, but pulls and persuades, almost begs us in gentle way. Whispers to us, perhaps this moment, you, this event. In a moment, Brooke or Billy or Vivica or Connie or Denise or Ronnie, you were placed here for this moment. These, th- th- there are these moments where in Christianity, we call them Christ moments where our hearts are not only strangely warm, that's part of it. We feel the warmth, we feel all oh, holy, right? But we're also feeling pulled, pulled into doing something, joining something, jumping into this river and just letting it take us. It's risky business. Schubert Ogden, my systematic theology professor, called it the point of Christology. It's that moment where we are confronted, he said, Everybody has a hard time with the word confront. With both the gift and the demand, I always say challenge, but demand of unconditional love. That moment we find our voices connecting to our feet and our hands and voices and we decide to shout and do. It happens when Devin, my son-in-law, decides to quit his job. That was a God moment for him. So that he could stay at home and be a stay-at-home dad. Not only being there for his daughter as she grows up, but also to begin to shoulder more the mental load of the family. Cassie had too much. And he decided to quit so he could support his wife and his daughter as they tried to move through life. That was a Christ moment, a loving kindness moment. He gave a lot up for that. It's that moment when Pastor Brooke decides to march in a Black Lives Matter parade, but then a year later joins Fernell Miller's circle of what white people can do about racism. It's that moment, Randy, you decide to become chair of Bear Creek UMC's trustees. That's a spiritual move by you. And actively work to make our building a welcome place for all people. And it's that moment Darren Danner decided for his family and his own life to go to AA for the first time and admit his struggle and try to work through it. Those are all Christ events. It's that moment that Sonia and Connie decide to start a women's spirituality group after a pandemic. That is a Christ moment. It's that moment when a lawyer in one of my churches decides to quit. Not Nothing against lawyers, but he had to struggle with it. He thought it was just too commercial for him. And instead, he became a missionary in Mozambique. It's that moment when Brooke Self decides to do a booth for Bear Creek at the Pride Parade, and she makes, I don't know, maybe 100 neck coolers the first time she does it. 
And then we're still at it year after year after year. Now we make 800 of them. That is a river that's growing. It's that moment we begin to realize that prayer uh, 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 isn't just putting our hands together, bowing our heads, but instead it's about listening to that river all of our hearts and letting go of our selfishness and letting that river take us. That moment we realize that 90% of active prayer life is done with our hands and our feet and our pen. Presence is prayer. 90%. Prayer is presence. Being there. It's that moment when we realize that your job doesn't have to be a job, just a paycheck. But it can be an opportunity for you to extend that river of love into your workplace. A moment, you don't have to shout Jesus Christ in that workshop, in that workplace. You just have to be love, be kindness. A moment when you realize that even though you're a doctor, a teacher, or you work in a coffee shop or at Safeway, or you're retired and hang out in a particular bar or restaurant, you can make that place a part of your vocation, your calling. You can let God's work, God's love work through you to make that place a kinder place, a more loving space. And you might want to start with your families, right? It's that moment when for such a time of this meets us right between the eyes. And instead of letting that moment pass, and by the way, there are millions that have gone by me. They go by, I get it, but the cool thing about that river, it keeps coming. It doesn't let you go. But instead of ignoring it this time, you get the ding. You answer the phone, you know. We actually pick it up and say, yes, I'll do it. I'll stand up. I'll speak out. I'll join that river. I believe I can be a part of a better world. The problem, of course, even for Esther, is she really doesn't believe she has any power. She's a pawn. You can hear it in everything she says. I don't have any power. She's a pawn in a great big powerful system in which she is absolutely given no power at all, even though she is queen. She doesn't see herself as having any power. How many times have you said that in the last four years? How many times have you said that in your workplaces? How many times have you said that when you've read the news or listened to it? How many times have we said it in the last week as we watch people of Israel walk through their existential 911, as we watch Palestine wonder how in the world they're going to stay alive in the repercussion? What can we do? What can we do for the Ukraine? What can we do? The world's problems are so big, and I'm just this tiny, 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 tiny dot on the other side of the world. I'm not Esther. 
I'm not Mordecai. I'm just little old Brooke McBride. Number 798 at Rapid City Central in the sophomore class. And every time I look at the news, that little old me shrinks. Gets smaller. Tinier and tinier. Every time. Sometimes I don't even know if I matter. The great big chaotic mess of this world does what it's supposed to do and what it's intent on doing. It had this big chaotic mess of a world likes to swallow us up. It steals any sense of I can or I have the power. And I am no longer called for squat. I am left with this. Great story. Esther. But what does it have to do with me? That's not my story. That's their story. That's her story. Wrong. This is our story. It is the story of all humankind. To be human is to be called. To be fully human is to be called. But years of no agency, no empowerment, of being pawns, of being overwhelmed by grief and every other thing we can think of, it just whittles away at that. I've been watching some grief videos by David Kessler. I love you. Please go on grief.com. He's just got some great stuff there. And in one of the videos, he talks about something that really hit me. He said during and since the pandemic... Many of us are overwhelmed by grief. And we said when we are overwhelmed with grief, we really, really get stuck. There's a lot of stuck people out there. We really fall in this deep sense of being upon. We don't feel we have any power, any agency. We want to find joy and meaning, but we can't seem to crawl out of the mud. Feel like that sometimes, even to get out there. And I get that. I feel that sometimes too. But he said that one of the things that has helped him and so many in grief is to learn not to think too far ahead, but to learn to plant and look for micro bits of gratitude in your life. Little bits of gratitude in your life. Um, No, you're not happy right now, maybe. But can you plant a little seed of joy into your next day? Just right into the next day. Just go on a walk. Just stop and enjoy the beauty of a flower or a sunset. Listen to some beautiful music. No, you don't want to go to a big group gathering, but could you maybe call a friend for coffee, right? Could you try a, uh, to place a smile on somebody else's face um, who might be going through the same thing? Small, micro bits of gratitude planted in your today and tomorrow. You don't have to go any further. You don't have to think even any further. Just today and tomorrow. What would happen if we tried doing that with meaning in this world? No, we can't save Ukraine, but is there one thing we could do to bring peace closer in our world? My favorite quote of all times is, the earth is crammed with heaven. 
every common bush afire with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. Somebody, I said that one time, and somebody said, what's wrong with plucking blackberries? <laughs> and there is some good in that, I must say, but, but I think sometimes taking shoes off and realizing that plucking blackberries is a holy thing, that, it can, that God is in the midst of that maybe. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi suggests this in tough times. Finally, brothers and sisters, siblings, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think and do these things. On October 2nd, many in our church went out and picked corn for the food ministry of Hope Link. And we were to arrive at a cornfield near Bob's corn maze to pick sweet corn, and we thought there was going to be 17 of us there, and there were 17 from our church. It's, it's actually, though, a cool story first. Bob, Bob's corn gave Hope Link 14 rows of corn, sweet corn, each row, I think a quarter mile, am I right, long? And we were to meet and kind of glean this field. I mean, is that biblical or what? We're we're gleaning this field. Um, and Cindy and I and Emerson and 14 other Bear Creek folk and families, we converged on this field. But when we, what we didn't realize is that we were going to get a lot of help. <laughs> I mean, I think at least 300 people out there. And Girl Scouts, little kids, two, three years old. I mean, it was just a full house of people. Um, and I thought, you know that this organization was going to be very organized, right? I mean, that was going to take us 20, 30 minutes to get them in the right rows and be assigned to certain spots and all this stuff. Nope, it was like they shot a gun and said, go for it. <laughs> and so we, we had buckets and we just, it was like a field of ants just invading this field of corn. I mean, it was just chaotic, so maybe a little too chaotic for some of us. Um, but we were just kind of released out there, right? Cindy and I and Emerson, and I think we had Cora come join us. Um, neither one of those two kids, I think, had ever really seen a field of corn in their lives. I mean, they have seen it from the car. But it was overwhelming to them. These were tall, tall corn stalks. And the ears, seriously, Cora picked one, and it was bigger than her arm. She took a look at it, and she said, what is this? I had to show her where they were at first. Um, and we started picking, and, and Cora, I think, and Emerson were both kind of shocked at first. There were bugs, too, you know, bugs, ew, you know. <laughs> so, and I thought, wow, we're going to have a long day. But after a while, they really started to get into it, you know. Um, and they started picking, and it was just such a, a joy to just lose ourselves in that cornfield. Um, and, and by the way, you had to not only pick the corn, but then afterwards, you had to step on the corn stalk so everybody else knew it was done. And just, can you imagine little Cora stepping on that corn stalk and down it went, and then 50 other people knocking them down right next to you. It was chaos. But, uh, but they did it. They enjoyed it. They not only locked them down, but they, they got into it. They were into the river, right? And together, 300 ants 
um, tackled that field in a, just in an hour, I'd say, an hour 15 it felt like. Maybe it was longer. I left early. But um, we picked, get this, 11 tons of corn. 11 tons for ham- hungry families in our area. This Sunday we heard that God's hands is going to serve Lake Washington. Um, and you wonder, what can you do for 40 houseless women and children living in cars? We can do one thing. We can knock it out. We can be a part of that, right? Um, in one of my favorite books, uh, everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten. Um, my, my mom, by the way, was my kindergarten teacher, so I learned a lot that year. <laughs> but in that book, they talk about uh, he talks about meeting this man who was in a concentration camp. And he was asked at the end of his speech, um, what is the meaning of life? And, you know, the guy kind of laughed at first. He said, usually I don't get such heavy questions, you know. <laughs> How much time do you got? But then out of his pocket, he pulled a little piece of a mirror and he said he was in the concentration camp when he was a kid and he said that uh, one time an SS officer was on a motorcycle and he came flying through and you know everybody was so fearful of those SS officers he came flying through and his his uh, mirror on his motorcycle hit one of the poles and and the and the glass and the mirror fell down on the ground and he said I was a little kid I didn't have a toy in my life I didn't have anything I saw that piece of glass and he said I grabbed it and I went and I started to just round the corners and scrape it against the brick and uh, make a nice little circle and he said what got me through that terrible time of being in the Holocaust was I was able to just start reflecting light and he said I started to take the light from the sun and reflect it into the darkest corner I could possibly reflect into. And he said it became who I was. It's what got me through. I I just reflected that light into the darkest corners and it just gave me joy. And I I loved doing it. I had to sneak around to do it a lot. He said that is what brought him meaning in that dark time. And he said it is that that makes me have meaning now. I'm not the light, he said, but I can reflect it. And I can reflect it in creative ways in the most darkest places in this world. We are in a dark place, and what a dark place does is it consumes us. It hides the sun. We begin to realize, or think at least, we, we hear the lie that there is no light. There is. And every time we reflect it, every time we do something good, every time we do just something little, wherever we are, that light is realized. And we expose the lie. We are people of light. May we continue to be so. And all the people said, for such a time as this, amen.